Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome back to The Napoleon Assist and the first instalment of War of 1812 Month. This will probably be the last of the themed months. Spoiler there for you. Um, There are changes likely to be afoot on The Napoleon Assist. Patrons, you will be informed well in advance. Please do not worry. But we are going to go out with something of a bang. There's a huge amount of content incoming in terms of debates, uh, discussions about memory and impact of this conflict. And it's a a learning curve for me. This is not a conflict that I will consider myself to be au fait in. I know the basics, obviously. Um, But it's, it's gonna be a journey for me as much as it is for you. And how better to start off on that journey than throwing ourselves in at the deep end. And who better to plunge us into the icy cold waters of this conflict? I think that's an apt metaphor. I'm going with it. Why not? Then my good buddy, Josh Proven, who I'm now going to refer to as my Napoleonicist correspondent and consultant historian. There we go, Josh, you are a consultant historian. It's a thing because I just said so. Putting it in the bio, I'm putting it in the bio right now. <laughs> Fantastic. There we go. We're owning it. Job done. Um, though I can't promise you a substantial fee for your consultancy work. I do apologize. Um, this is terrible. We sh- you should have to take me to court over it. Uh, <laughs> before we get there, let's, let's try and distract Josh by uh, heaping praise upon him because he's a praiseworthy individual. Author of Bullock's Grain and Good Madeira. I'm going to ditch the bad jokes now because they're so, oh, oh wait, I've just gone and made the bad joke. What a shame. Um, He's also Master of Adventures in Historyland, a a brilliant show that folks you need to go and subscribe on YouTube to, uh, covering literally everything. It feels like there's nothing this guy doesn't know and can't offer an informed take on. Um, It's fascinating. 
as I say, Napoleon is this regular um, kind of correspondent part of the furniture. I'm going to get a bench named after you, I suspect. Um, and, you know, always digs me out of a tight spot by providing some really interesting stuff on things I'm embarrassingly ignorant about. And we are doing exactly that today because we're going to talk about Native Americans in the War of 1812. Yes, you will get some of the predictable inverted commas stuff, the stuff you would expect. Things about how the war starts and its legacy and, and combat and, and all the rest of it and its course. And um, there might be something about pro Austin coming. Details are still being worked out as this is being recorded. All of that will come, but we're not going to forget the indigenous population, the First Nation, the people who were there long before Europeans got itchy feet and headed over to the inverted commas new world. It wasn't a new world because it had always been there. Um, Josh, welcome. That was a, a very waffly introduction, but it's good to see you, my friend. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm looking forward to it. As I, as I said uh, before when I was doing the prep for this, it was very enjoyable. I don't, I don't get to tra travel in history land through the War of 1812 all that much, although I, I do enjoy it when I do. So this is going to be fun. It absolutely is. We do like our, our kind of niche topics from time to time on this podcast. Um, I, I kind of feel Native Americans shouldn't be kind of niche, although is Native American the right term, I suppose, is just one thing to get off the, mm. to, to address off the bat, because First Nations is perhaps better. Uh, there's a lot of discussion at the moment about what term do you use? Um, is indigenous the best word? I don't really know uh, anymore. I mean, yeah. The discussion about uh, what term to apply to the people of the Americas um, has occupied a great deal of time and is something that is yet to be resolved and it has changed so much that it has its own sort of section of historiography practically in um, study. Uh, you know the, the how the trends in trends in scholarship and things like that and and popular uh, memory I suppose you could do a paper on it very easily. Um, it, it 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 frankly I believe that it depends. Uh, most accurately, I think the most accurate you can possibly do is to try where possible to refer to the nations specifically rather than as a whole. Um, Failing that, you should, and I think it's good to remember that most of the Native Americans I've ever been in contact with or seen on documentaries or have spoken about this all have, all tend to have their own opinion on this as well. Some prefer Indian now because it's just the what they've just owned it. Uh, some prefer, if for instance, if you were active in civil rights in the 70s and 80s, you might prefer American Indian as it was promoted by the uh, American Indian movement. Uh, then uh, obviously in the, uh, between the 80s and 90s and 2000s, Native American is a very politically correct term, but as anybody from the 80s will, chat, will say, the argument against that is, well, that means well, anybody can be a Native American technically if you were born in, the United, in you know, North America, anywhere in the Americas. So um, they're all interchangeable. And like I say, I, I've found the best way to, to sort of navigate it is just to try where possible to use the actual 
nations involved, sometimes that is not possible when talking about large wars and groups, of course. So then you fall back on simply that um, you just make it known that you know you're you're being respectful. You're not using it as a pejorative, uh, whatever word you use. Because sometimes you do have to use the historical terms as well. Um, the answer is there is no answer to this question. You just have to do your best. A podcast guest's nightmare, a question to which there is no answer, um, but nicely handled. And I think hopefully we've kind of uh, done our best to demonstrate that if we are using a term that causes offence, firstly, apologies, but that is not the intent. Um, and please do take this in the spirit in which it is given, which is that we are trying to Mm-hmm. enlighten people about uh, a section of history that often yeah. gets pushed to the sidelines to put it mildly in current popular terminology this subject is not properly decolonized therefore it's almost impossible to not to uh, offend someone or make someone feel uncomfortable when talking about this and i'm talking about either side here this in this thing so let's take it back a bit, shall we? Um, I remember quite vividly studying what were known as the French-Indian Wars, um, which uh, predates the American Revolution. They are an extension of the Seven Years' War, but they're essentially what's happening. They're, they're kind of a manifestation of that conflict in North America, but there's more to it than that because there are different underlying tensions and there's a sort of slightly different political thing but of course war breaking out in Europe is a convenient excuse to then go uh, on the offensive against the French and and for the French to go on the offensive against the British and and so you see um, that conflict play out. I always feel that actually the disappearance of competition between the uh, settling the settling nations actually doesn't do the uh native american population for want of a better term much good because now the british can sit there and get complacent and arguments can be built that it's part of that complacency that then leads ultimately to the situation that causes the american revolution slash war of independence so where am i going with this waffly kind of comment rather than question well i guess what i'm asking is that how are the native americans affected by the American colonies gaining independence because we've got this long run-in of a very complex situation where they're valued and then they're seen as a hindrance and then they're seen as somewhere in between. They're potential allies, then they're not, then they're people that can be traded with, they have local knowledge. It's a complex melting pot, but obviously there's a sea change or a scope for a sea change when the British are kicked out of the 13 colonies and those 13 colonies become the fledgling United States of America. Obviously the Brits are still around, they're up in Canada. Canada doesn't break away. So how, obviously this is gonna kind of vary by region, but how are the Native American tribes affected by this change and quite significant change in the political dynamic in the region? Well, um, to put it mildly, the the American War of Independence, the way it the way it panned out in the Treaty of Paris, that completely excluded any sort of Native American um, input in the in in the way it uh, was signed and agreed upon, um, left every nation from the Ohio to the Mississippi vulnerable to encroachment. 
uh, by the former British colonies. Uh, the end of the American War of Independence and specifically from the acceptance of the Constitution in 1788 marks the end of the first phase of uh, the gradual eradic eradication of indigenous sovereignty, which began with the initial explorations, conquests and colonizations of the Atlantic uh, and Gulf coasts uh, by Europeans in the 15th century. Uh, one of the complaints leveled against the British government in the 1770s, actually, was the embargo on settlement of the Ohio Valley after the Seven Years' War. Uh, the British were trying to cut costs uh, back then and constantly fighting coalitions of Indians had proven very expensive. And after Pontiac's war and the almost simultaneous Cherokee war in the, 16, uh, in the 1760s and 1770s, um, it was found that trying to keep the colonies and Native American nations apart seemed the best course of action. And of course it didn't pan out because the American Revolution happened. Um, so during the revolution itself, intense fighting between the Ohio Indians and the westernmost colonists uh, ended with the Ohio Confederates being driven back, um, which is a podca podcast in itself with the American Revolution, if anybody wants to do one of those. Um, but with the British gone, there was no longer any barrier to westward expansion you know, of the United States. They, they could now just pile into uh, the territories that were ceded um, by the British, uh, who, you know, it, with, with, with rich sort of cheek almost, uh, just said, all the Ohio, which we don't properly own, we just sort of have claim to, is now the United States, you know, is now territory of the United States of America. Um, so the large bulk of the land between the Appalachians and the Mississippi, bordering the Great Lakes, is handed over to the Americans and they call that the Northwest Territories of the United States. And they use this ostensibly to satisfy the debts incurred by uh, fighting the British. Um, a so-called Southern Territory existed in what is now Tennessee as well. Um, now through the 1780s, the United States struggled to create a nation uh, against looming political division and e economic hardship. Um, the problem of overpopulating contested land claimed by people who didn't care that no Indian nation had signed the Treaty of Paris, sorry to bang that drum, grew. Um, and the British uh, stoked fires from the Canadian border, uh, supporting and inciting Native American nations to raid the territories, hoping that the USA would collapse politically on a, of its own accord and encouraged raiding, which in turn prompted snatch and burn operations from the Kentucky frontiersmen and new colonists flooding in from the east. By 1791, about 160,000 of the United States estimated 4 million strong population were living in the Ohio frontier along the borders of Pennsylvania, Virginia, what will become Kentucky, uh, and a full-scale war of suppression took place against a percentage of the 70,000 native inhabitants of the Ohio. Uh, at the Battle of the Wabash in 1791, though, and it's time to get your cheering hats on now, boys, Little Turtle of the Miami destroyed a 1,700-man U.S. Army, which, stands, which stood as their greatest defeat by a foreign power until the 20th century, and one of the largest battles of the so-called Indian Wars. And the reason why the U.S. Army exists to this very day was this, this disaster, St. Clair's defeat, as it was called. It kicked off the so-called Northwest Indian War, which ended with the American victory at Fallen Timbers in 1794, 
And the Treaty of Grenville, which followed uh, the year after, which the British, in which the British surrendered Detroit. Uh, and the Americans now found themselves in receipt of the land necessary to create the state of Ohio, um, which entered the Union in 1803. But this, with continuing creation of more territories for settlement, encouraged more of the same problems that we have just covered. Um, so it's going to be a sort of a continuing circle of, of this sort of thing going forwards. Why? <clears throat> Why are we just so... Ugh. That's not my most profound comment ever, um, I have to admit, but it's just staggering. Sorry, I need to get a grip of myself. Um, but the 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 way in which we just trampled on these people yeah, is the remarkable. The Treaty of Paris is actually really important in what happens because nobody took into account to consult the nations involved in the Ohio, in the who are living in the Ohio. I mean, even the Iroquois who got who most got split up and got kicked into Canada and stuff like that. Um, they didn't get a say in what was happening because they were assumed to be loyalists and so they got land in Canada. But the people who had to stay in, in what, I mean, it, it's not even settled territory. The Ohio had been one of the reasons why the French and Indian War happened, <coughs> settlement of the Ohio. Um, and yeah, the fact that nobody, the, the fact that the British basically just said this land, which we basically assumed was ours, which we were kind of keeping as a sort of an Indian held place, well, we can't hold it anymore because we lost the war. So it's yours, United States. Good luck with it. And you get the beginnings of the next phase in the in the great uh, uh, sort of uh, civilizational disaster of, of the colonization of the United States, of the of the America of North America. This is what happens when you don't consult local people about things that have a dramatic impact locally. Um, let's, let's not go off on a rant about British and colonial attitudes. Uh, much though, yes, okay, they belong in this period because this is the period of them. It doesn't mean you have to look at them now and think, oh yeah, that was a great idea. Um, let's instead bring the focus back to the Native Americans. What's their way of life like? Because I'm gonna be honest with you, I am not prepared to trust the extensive research that I did by watching The Last of the Mohicans. I think you're going to tell me that some of the stuff in there isn't even correct. Shocking, right? Hollywood sometimes puts story before accuracy. What, what madness is this? What are you on about? What are you on about? <laughs> it's, it's a documentary. I saw it on TV. It has to be true. Daniel Day-Lewis did so much research. So the nations of the Ohio and the Mississippi uh, lived in organized towns and villages and wider networks of the same... Uh, with and they were connected by trails and in some places roads. Uh, the setup in uh, certain uh, parts were, were organized uh, was organized on on seasonal lines, and communities might move around depending on the hunting or plowing season, uh, stocking up uh, agricultural produce before moving to winter hunting camps. So they operated a subsistence um, uh, farming and hunter gathering model sort of like that. Uh, most of them had subgroups or clans and generally these were matrilineal. Uh, and um, they are, and in addition to that, 
they, by this point, had been in contact with um, Euro-Americans for so long that commingling was very common, um, with many adopted or mixed race Europeans and Americans living with various nations, especially in the Ohio. Um, but to be honest, actually, this is very common uh, up and down the eastern seaboard. Uh, many had become to adopt east, uh, begun to adopt uh, eastern ways and use uh, eastern names. Um, however, and they lived also in recognizably sort of Euro-American ways, uh, indistinguishable in some cases from the so-called settlers, uh, to the extent that many nations practiced even chattel bondage and slavery. Uh, many uh, also in Brantford, Ontario, and Salem, Ohio, and uh, Moravian Town, which I believe is in uh, what was called the province of, I want to say Upper Canada, but I'm sure all the Canadian historians in there will be bashing me on the head if I got that wrong. Um, but these were now, a lot of these people were now second genera uh, generation Christians. Uh, one prominent chief, um, Tao Yaron Toyo, I've, I'm massacre a lot of these uh, traditional names, which means between the logs, apparently, um, of the Wyandotte became a Methodist minister. And even the, the Shawnee prophetic movement, which we'll, we'll get to in a minute, was based on the understanding of a Christian afterlife. In terms of traditional structure, though, uh, the men functioned as defenders, uh, warriors, hunters, public leaders, if you, if you might say, and general providers, um, and women controlled, and I mean this legally, um, the home and the harvest. Uh, many nations required the consent of senior women uh, in major decisions for anything to happen, and nothing functioned without their direction. Uh, however, the pressure of white encroachment and a bewildering series of treaties between 1803 and 1809, uh, designed to try and achieve the annexation uh, of the uh, yeah, it, it tried to, which tried to, had sort of like the long-term aim of trying to achieve annexation by assimilation, meant that the stability was hard to come by. And thus, uh, most nations were ever in danger of outside interference. And when you get that sort of an environment, radical thinking to solve those problems is never far away. It's fascinating to hear what you say about this kind of cultural assimilation that ends up going on. Um, and I guess like almost kind of willingness to embrace a different way uh, of life. Let's break this down by region, though. Which tribes effectively are where? I mean, we're, we're talking about uh, obviously Ohio and Canada, but you know, what else are we talking about here? And what were the relationships like with white, white settlers? Um, obvious place to start is, is start with Canada and work our way south because we have something called Tecumseh's War, I think might be the pronunciation, which isn't a promising notion when we talk about relations between settlers and indigenous populations. Yeah, uh, okay, so starting in Canada, uh, you have the remnants of the loyalist Haudenosaunee or the Iroquois, uh, crowded along the edge of the Great Lakes and the parcels of the United States. Uh, then from there into what is now Wisconsin and Western Illinois uh, and Indiana, you have roughly from north to south the Ojibwe, Ho-Chunk, better known as the Winnebago, the Meskwaki, also uh, uh, the uh, Sak, uh, also known as the Fox, 
uh, Kickapoo, Miami, Wea, and um, Piankishaw, uh, uh, Peoria, and Kaskaskia. And this is like from north to south uh, through um, western and eastern. The, the, the western and eastern parts of those three places I, I just mentioned. Um, then uh, you get uh, through from Michigan, Ohio, and eastern Illinois. Um, it's the Wyandotte, Potawatomi, Seneca, Ottawa, Lenape, also known as Delaware, uh, and Shawnee. Uh, when you reach Kentucky and Tennessee, the nations become larger in terms of territory, at least. Um, and uh, or at least that used to be the case. And moving through Tennessee, you find uh, the Cherokee further south into Georgia, Mississippi, and Alabama. You get the Muscogee, who are also known as the who are also known as the Creek, um, and the Chickasaw and Choctaw. And in Florida, you get an emerging Muscogee breakaway nation of the Seminoles. Uh, now, due to the ravages of diseases, wars, cultural assimilation, depopulation of communities, and um, and stuff like that, the, the numbers you're looking at are in the hundreds of thousands of people, probably never approaching 500,000 in the entire area east of the Mississippi from Can and from Canada to the Gulf of Mexico, compared to the millions of uh, Euro-Americans uh, ever hungry for land pushing west. And let's be honest, the great injustice here is the fact that between 1791 and 1812, westward settlement to support the now 8 million strong population of the United States, based on an arbitrary claim derived from a treaty they did not include, banging the drum again, the, uh, the present owners of the land in question, uh, and conveyanced by the then groundless creation of uh, around five territories and uh, new states, um, saw the systematic loss of millions of acres of land from sovereign nations, driving them further west into increasingly small areas of contested space and opening the road to future uh, conflicts which would occur on the Great Plains uh, later in the 19th century. Relations-wise, um, each nation had its own agendas and sub-agendas uh, in this period. Unity was not terribly common due to religious and political shifts um, throughout the nations involved. However, the majority saw at least the British as an ally that might be useful in creating a firm border with the USA. Now, you mentioned a chap called Tecumseh. I believe, I, I watched a movie in which that was how they pronounced his name, and so I'm going to go with that. Um, <laughs> Tecumseh's war uh, yeah, Tecumseh fought a war and they called, named it after him. And it's very common to actually call wars with Native Americans after the principal leader or who you think is the principal leader. And so actually that Northwestern Indian War was actually called Little Turtles War at one point. You get later on in this, uh, you get Black Hawks War, stuff like that. Um, so Tecumseh's war grew out of a specific prophetic movement, which I mentioned earlier, started by his younger brother, uh, whose name was Tesquatwa, um, uh, but that was the name he became known as. He's also popularly known as the Prophet. Um, Tesquatwa was a holy man who had preached visions of salvation given to him by the Great Spirit, first just for the Shawnee, um, which was where the brothers came from. And then when uh, he gained momentum for uh, this was expanded to all Native Americans. Um, Tesquatwa 
um, built towns for his followers as he moved around. And whenever they were built, they became known as a prophet's town. Um, and at its heart, this was a message of fundamental purification and unity. Uh, but it took some ugly turns, such as the burning of accused witches and the slaughter of dogs. Um, it also incited animosity of conservative individualists, among other tribes. So except for the murderous sanctity of the movement, it was officially against confrontation with the United States, arguing that unity would bring, bring security. Uh, one might reject the prophet. I found <laughs> this sort of uh, amusing. Um, by saying something wry like, I could not slaughter my dogs. Um, the wish for some sort of security came from in the, came in the period between 1803 and 1809 when a series of tr treaties that I alluded to earlier uh, with the Miami, Potawatomi and Lenape uh, ceded vast tracts of land to the United States for hopes of making a border finally stick. Factions arose between the nations of the Ohio with the Prophet's Down Coalition becoming increasingly at odds with, with leaders like Little Turtle, who preferred to continue to try and enforce the standing treaties. I mean, Little Turtle as well, and, the, and lots of the chiefs of those nations I just mentioned was also heavily invested in trying to make um, this deal with the United States work because he had sold off a lot of the land to profit. Um, now in 1807, the Prophet's brother Tecumseh a noted war leader began having visions as well. Um, but in these, he foresaw a united Indian nation led by a council of elected chiefs and a firm border with the USA. And he set out to rally support, sending adherents back to Provincetown uh, as he ranged across the, the Old West, uh, as you might call it. Um, and he remained somewhat under the radar as a result. Now, the Shawnees brothers' dreams of a united nation to oppose the United States were opposed by these chiefs, as I said before, such as Little Turtle. Um, and this is where you get collisions within the Native American nations that are going to cause problems down the line. Now, a unified uh, movement had been suggested before by people like Joseph Brandt of the Mohawk, who's I believe proper name is something given something like uh, or something like that. I do apologize. Uh, it's the Mohawk have very, very complicated names for a dumb European to say. Um, but after the American Revolution, there had been also other prophets uh, with similar gospels. So all of this sort of stuff was was sort of accessible to people. They like the, it, it wasn't going away these ideas of unity and purification and trying to change the way things were in order to stave off American uh, in, interference. Um, but the thing is that none of these former people had the gifts of oratory that the Shawnee brothers had. They were magnetic speakers. Um, now their and their message spread far and wide all the way down to the Muscogee lands in the south. Now, unfortunately, much of what Little Turtle and his um, adhere, and his sort of uh, allies feared uh, did come to pass as a result of these teachings, because they foresaw that by trying to gather everybody together into one group, you were just going to cause civil wars, you were going to cause faction. This absolutely happened. Um, the, the visionary's message factionalized most of the nations it spread to, 
into war and peace camps and encouraged civil war and left many nations vulnerable to American mediation and just outright interference. In 1810, the governor of Indiana uh, territory and future president, William Henry Harrison, uh, who had been striving to control the situation because he because the, the other complicated thing is the Americans didn't want just masses of Native American civil wars breaking up. They wanted to be able to control the situation. Uh, but he was confronted by the force of nature that was to come, sir, at Grousland Mansion. Uh, the meeting almost ended in bloodshed and left the USA with no doubts the Prophetstown, uh, that Prophetstown needed to be destroyed. At the Battle of Tippecanoe in 1811, Harrison achieved his aim and laid a platform on which to use to run for president in the future, as it turned out. And Tecumseh returned, because he was, he was away sort of gathering support when this happened. Um, he returned to find many of his friends dead and his brother in hiding. Uh, fired, and so fired by revenge, he accepted the British offer to, to command their Native American allies in the Ohio um, when war broke out uh, uh, the next year. Um, and so Tecumseh's war basically flows into the War of 1812 and represents Tecumseh's goal of using um, this event to try and build his new nation. It was the continuation also of the complicated politics of the old Northwest and an important part of the fallout of the westward expansion of the United States, which is already on the cards as the exploration of the Louisiana Purchase repeats the absurdity of arbitrarily claiming land you've never seen owned by people that you've never met. And when most of the Midwest was bought by Napoleon, bought from Napoleon in 1803 and explored by the Lewis and Clark expedition in 1804 and 1806, this is just literally history rhyming, if not just totally going against Mark Twain and repeating itself. I mean, just the, the hilarity of the Louisiana Purchase. I mean, I mean, in some respects, it's not funny, obviously, but in other respects, it really is. You know, this idea, yeah, we're, we're just going to buy this big slab of land. No idea what's there, um, but you don't want it, we'll have it. it just, um, was Napoleon dissatisfied? Did he think he should have asked for a higher price later on? I don't, I, I do seem to recall some sort of gripe. He might have said that he, he could have he could have asked for more because he was rather pressed for time. And I think the, the USA felt that they got a really good deal. Um, and indeed they did, as it turned out. Um, but you know, Napoleon needed money to fight finances, wars, and you know, 1803, things were gonna kick off pretty quickly. So yeah, hindsight. I mean, is it a buyer's market or a seller's market? That's always yeah. the existential question, isn't it? Back to the, the tribes, what I'm liking from what you're saying here is that it it chimes with what I certainly picked up when I was studying the uh, Seven Years' War as a precocious and, and spotty, it has to be said, 17-year-old, um, uh, which is this kind of, this sense that the tribes aren't idle. They know the situation. They know how to try and manipulate the, that situation. So... You know, they're not sitting back idly during the War of 1812. There is a strategy. But it, it kind of feels to me like they there's, there's a lot of scope to back the wrong horse here. The stakes seem to get higher and higher and more and more fraught as the 18th century moves into the 19th century. And, you know, expansionism becomes more and more obviously on the American agenda. 
so is there any sense of let's just let these European settlers fight it out and then we'll we'll deal with whatever fallout there is or is there um, this sense that if you do back the right horse then perhaps you can get back what you had before yeah um there is a lot of that i think um uh, but it also depends where you are and it's a bit of both even then um the days of being able to play the europeans off against each other have mostly gone now uh because you know as you said at the beginning it's resolved down to the british and canada and uh, the united states apparently own everything else which you know nobody had told us about is the feeling you get um but um the increasing focus of the United States as a result on developing the land uh, towards the Mississippi means that there is no option but to surrender land or fight. I mean, that's the stark simplicity of it. Uh, Tecumseh has rather popularly represent the effective attempt to unite in the face of impossible odds and make the Ohio River the border uh, of their sort of domain. Um, as does the Potawatomi, uh, oh, the, sorry, um, the tongue tie, as does the, the actions of the Potawatomi chief, Mayan Pock. Um, the war between Britain and the United States offered him the chance to perhaps win back the ceded territories, and indeed all of those involved in actually fighting the United States, the ceded territories lost in 1809 due to the, the land sales of people like Churchill and stuff like that, and create um, this union of nations that was really very visionary for, for Tecumseh and his brother to think up, uh, considering the, pres the pressures that were being put on them, the, them at the time. Um, certainly, some of the British actually liked this idea. After capturing Detroit uh, during the War of 1812, there was some hope of an end to the war, actually, since the orders and council that had started it, and I'm sure you'll get into the causes of the war and stuff in another episode, had actually been rescinded in hopes of stopping the conflict before it started. Now, uh, the British officer in command of the operation to take Detroit was uh, Isaac Brock, and his coup threatened this from actually being achieved. And knowing this, he wrote to the Earl of Liverpool that no peace should be made without the establishment of an Indian territory ruled only by British allied Indians. And this was an idea with which Lord Bath Bathurst agreed with um, and, and, and might have some bearing on why uh, early attempts to stop the war uh, didn't work out. Um, it cannot be too highly stressed, therefore, how important the Native Americans contingent in Brock's and, and General Proctor's forces were to the overall strategy along the Great Lakes for the British. Anyway, um, the fact that the coalition uh, formed by Tecumseh also had their own agenda is just sort of some icing on the cake there, that it's not just the British trying to get them to dance to their tune, they're trying to get something out of this. Uh, meanwhile, the five main nations of the Southeast kind of attempted to keep out of the Euro-American wars, but were under equal pressure from encroachment and strong arm tactics, and indeed were vulnerable to factionalism due to the preachings of Tecumseh uh, and the sort of the Shawnee prophetical movement. Um, and for example, the Muscogee or the Creeks uh, embarked on their own war that had nothing really to do with a rather vague struggle with the United States and Britain. 
So the change here is to see that the British are keen to use existing rifts and conflicts caused by the United States' Indian policy to destabilize the former colonies in return for political gain, rather than the Native Americans being caution of war they have no stake in. Strategy in a Native American context was based on maximum damage for minimal cost, you know, striking at isolated forts and towns and attempting to overwhelm defense forces without committing to a costly battle. This unfortunately was rarely possible given the Euro-American resources and predilection for stand-up fighting. Oftentimes, of course, they would be attached to allied European or American forces and they would act as they saw fit according to the strategy being undertaken. So things have changed, changed a little, you know, in the pre, pre-Seven Years' War, French and Indian War, specifically the Iroquois, tried to play the French off against the British. And one of the big results of the Seven Years' War was actually they lost out because they could no longer play the British off against the French. And then of course the American Revolution happened, it was just disastrous for the, for the Native Americans in, uh, in that basically, you know, it's, it's, a, it's always like a curving grade to grade the Europeans in America from a Native American perspective, but the worst ones won from their perspective, and this is what you have now. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm interested there about what you were saying about service as well and you know what these people are doing. Just flesh that out a little bit for us. What are these Native Americans doing on a practical level, because it's very easy to put together some caricature style image of, you know, people for, with Cherokee headdresses um, acting as scouts and and almost sort of guerrilla style operations. But what's the reality? Because there's a there's a small kernel in there which is local knowledge, right, and knowledge of the ground, and that's valuable. Um, but you know, are, are these guys like forming militias? Is this almost, you know, what the British try and do to the um, 
Native Americans, what Wellington does to the Spanish, you know, just train them along British army lines and give them a musket and give them discipline and, you know, maybe they'll turn out to be hardy warriors. Is, is that a philosophy? Um, I, I, in, in a sort of a malicious sense, I, I believe there is some intake of Native Americans, especially, as I said, in areas that are already very integrated with um, Euro-American populations. Um, this, is always, this has always been the case in Canada, where you get populations like the Matisse and stuff like that. Uh, and so you're already looking at, in quotes, Indians fighting like Europeans. Um, but the great problem uh, with trying to get hold of the, in the sovereign nations, warriors, and train them to stand in lines and shoot each other from 50 yards, um, is that they think that's stupid, and it is stupid. Um, like I said before, their way of fighting is much more sensible and really uh, something only modern soldiers can really grasp, that basically, if you even, they don't want to lose anybody. They want to attack, take no casualties, capture as many people as possible, and take them back for ransom and make examples of them and stuff like that. Um, doing, doing what the Europeans do doesn't make any sense. That's why there was so much trouble in trying to control war bands. Like when battles got really tough and they started losing warriors, they just said, obviously we're not going to get through this without losing a lot more men, so we should preserve ourselves and get out. Um, that's why you don't see the mobilization along regular lines. Um, but on this score, you do see allied contingents fulfilling a number of specific roles in conventional campaigns where they functioned as an auxiliary to the main force. Uh, they had smaller parts to play in coastal operations on the eastern seaboard where native population was pretty much non-existent and there were conventional and where conventional light troops were more than sufficient. But the more intelligent officers who had experience on the Great Lakes and Ohio and Canadian backcountry I uh, knew that military success depended on the support of native allies. These, I mean, it, it is a bit of a cliche, but it's just 100% true. They were peerless scouts and guides, adept at concealment and stealth in a way only modern soldiers understand, ready-made for raiding and punitive expeditions, uh, as the way of warfare was just, like I say, traditionally based about taking prisoners and minimizing casualties rather than just killing which and so in a way what they were doing requires much more intelligence um, this aspect of raiding was also used psychologically by the british knowing as they did the fear that indian war bands inspired and as you said before local knowledge of the terrain and people seasons and the routes and portages between the, uh, through the forests and uh, between the lakes and rivers is is massively important because in north america that knowledge is often the difference between victory and defeat. Um, and it's fairly common to read accounts of soldiers acknowledging their worth as hunters as well. In battle, they were masters of bush warfare and ambush through, uh, um, though, as I said, prone to disengage if things, if they took too many casualties. Um, in European style stand-up fights, they were usually used as a screening force and then they sort of moved away to the flanks um, to harass the enemy from uh, indirect, uh, indirect position from indirect positions, and 
given the terrain that constituted much of the northern, southern, and western theaters of the war, and the context in which he understood war, a native warrior was a, a really powerful asset to any army operating in these areas. At the start of the war, for instance, when preparing for action, General Brock wrote to his American counterpart in Detroit that, um, quote, it is far from my intention to join a war of extermination, but you must be aware that the numerous body of Indians who have attached themselves to my troops will be beyond my control the moment the contest commences. The unsaid threat rather lingered in the air when you considered 600 men of his 1,300 strong force were allied warriors, that one witness on their side said looked like something the devil had let out of hell for an hour's recreation on earth. With many considering the Detroit corridor therefore undefended, the Americans surrendered the fort without firing a shot rather than test Brock's resolve to unleash his, his horde from hell on the Ohio. Just that mentality of they look like demons. <laughs> We I mean, shall run away. We cannot withstand the the spawn of Satan. Just well, just... exactly, exactly. And to be honest, the, the the Native Americans kind of didn't mind that. I mean, the the warriors were there to put on a show. They wanted. They knew their project. They could project that that fear. They could get people to run away. And because they their way of warfare came from essentially a hunting society, don't run from the hunters. You know, and that—that's what they want you to do. That's they absolutely wanted these Europeans to be terrified of them and compare them to devils. Um, that suited them fine because when you're in a war, you don't care if people are mean to you. In fact, they probably thought, "Excellent, things working out really well. I should get more of this. I should get more feathers." Is there mutual respect or is there stigma attached here? You know, the because I'm thinking Peninsula War. Apologies, folks, but that is my area. Um, the British do love to have a scapegoat and blame the, the locals when something goes wrong. Do you see equivalents? Uh, there are sometimes equivalents, yes, because because of the um, Native American habit of, like I say, fighting only really when it suits them and when they have a distinct advantage. This is not to say they won't fight um, if they're outnumbered. In fact, they often can take out larger forces then they are fighting. They can inflict terrible casualties on larger forces and the enemy will think that they had twice their number just because of the way they used the terrain. But because of their way of, because they had, they were prone to um, not fighting on if, if it was going against them, many operations that prove unsuccessful were often blamed on the um, uncooperative nature of the allies. Um, as you saw there, there was often colorful allusions to, uh, you know, be, them being savage monsters. And while, of course, in, in, a, in a combat situation, that is a good thing for a soldier to project, it's also, it's also shouldn't be taken as what they were. They were these, these were human beings with families and, and, and stuff like that. Um, so there's both. You, you might just, first of all, as we've sort of been touching on through the entire thing, you might as well assume that the entire world at this time has a sort of racial bias and didn't really see anything wrong with that. Um, the Ameri I mean, you, you can see very clear parallels, can't you, with sort of that Roman attitude of anything that's not, inverted commas, civilised, i.e. under our jurisdiction and 
is visually and culturally, um, uh, you know, almost like a mirror to what we do, yeah. is classified as inverted commas barbarian, and it's yeah. not necessarily a case of a lack of civilization. It's just othering. Exactly, and the, literally, the Euro- European civilization comes from the Roman model, and so there should be no surprise that this is sort of yeah. the hardwired into people's brains. Um, yeah, so the Euro-Americans definitely saw the, the Native Americans as savages and that, that they needed tamed and educated and at the same time they lived in a dreadful fear of having to fight them. Um, allied warriors were routinely talked about in terms of revulsion and disgust due to their apparent heartless cruelty and war and let's not sugarcoat this, they could be very nasty um, if, you, if, you, if you came across them. This isn't to say that colonial and European militias and even regulars sometimes didn't commit depravities upon native populations, but this is not a nice time to be fighting wars in the back country of North America, let's just put it that way. Um, and yeah, most regulars from Europe and settlers from the East commonly called them devils and wretches and miserable things and reviled them, especially when Tecumseh seemed to be calling all the shots in 1813. That riled a lot of people when, when he seemed to actually be bossing Proctor around, which he kind of was. And maybe it would have been better if he'd been allowed to continue doing so. But um, some, like Brock, seemed to truly admire their allies. And many, indeed, as we've seen, chose to integrate themselves with them. Even on the American side, men like Sam Houston, uh, who is famous for uh, being uh, in, famous for the Texas Revolution. Um, He was an adopted part of the Cherokee Nation and honestly said once that he preferred the freedom he had found there to anything else he'd known. So um, it's a complicated thing, but yes, you're definitely seeing sort of this, they are the other, we respect them as warriors, but we, we don't really understand where they're coming from. And the majority, that's probably for the majority at the time. Why does this not particularly surprise me? And and yes, folks, I know people are going to say, "Well, look, it's the it's the nineteenth century. Uh, you know, this this shouldn't be surprising." And, and hence my sarcasm. No, it's not surprising. Um, but that doesn't mean that we need to look upon it and go, "Oh yes, that that was absolutely um, that was absolutely right." Um, and in no way, you know, outdated even back then. But it, it was the norm. Um, of course, it was. And you can see exactly the same thing happening. Elsewhere, you know, in some respects, there was an inclination to denigrate um, warriors in India, uh, not to the same extent, it should be said, um, but there was nonetheless this sense that you needed white men to control these people and mm-hmm. make them realise their potential because they couldn't mm-hmm. do that on their own. Exactly. I think that it's interesting that Europeans seem to have a much almost Certainly with their own sepoys and stuff like that, they seem to have a much less sort of regard for their prowess without European supervision, we'll put it that way. They thought they were brave and everything like that. They were superb fighters and stuff, but you don't quite get the same sense of these are things of the forest (laughs) that you get when people talk about Native American war bands and stuff. So let's talk specifics, let's talk events, let's talk dates, um, and sadly let's talk bloodshed. Um, In terms of actual fighting, 
let's let's look at some of these actions that they're involved in. And I want to do that through some of the big names. So let's kick off with the sort of the thread that you've already been um, laying out for us, which is Tecumseh. Yeah, uh, definitely. He's, I mean, he's a very interesting guy and I recommend people look him up uh, and read more about him because uh, he's one of the great, he's one of the great, he's really up there with the like more legendary figures, like uh, or popularly legendary figures like Sitting Bull and people like that. Um, but Tecumseh is very important to the war effort and especially to men like General Procter. Uh, because he was a popular figure, a figure able to rally people to him. He was much more impressive than Proctor, let's put it that way. And hopes of a great Indian army to descend on the Ohio were mainly pinned on his charisma. That was absolutely something the British were hoping to try and do. Um, in the spring of 1813, the British force of around uh, 900 regulars and militia were ready to invade the United States and boasted 1,300 allied warriors as their main strike force. This is very large numbers. Um, you're gonna see much larger numbers of allied warriors uh, than practically any other uh, war, certainly since the, the French and Indian War. Um, and more were coming in from as far away as the Great Plains every day. And this is absolutely down to Tecumseh's message. Uh, and you really needed a man like him to control uh, a native force of that size and keep it in the field for the reasons I've said before, because, you know, they're, they're essentially the traditionalists are there for loot and to make their names as warriors and they'll go home when they're done and others will go home once they believe the objective is um, attained and others will stick around because of the charisma of individual war leaders and stuff like that. You needed someone like to come say, to to get that force moving um, and he made an abort he had actually made an abortive attempt to take the field in 1812 but had actually been defeated and wounded in that effort his return in 1813 with his great supposedly united war party which was anything but coincided with Proctor's siege of fort meigs uh, against general Harrison, it's Mr. President again, by the way, um, a fiasco that irritated and dispirited Tecumseh's men. Uh, these were issues that directly influenced the massacre of prisoners by an, uh, on the orders of an Ottawa chief called Spilletnose uh, after an engagement called Dudley's defeat. And this again, sadly, was something that tended to happen uh, when uh, disgruntled uh, Native American allies uh, were ignored or uh, uh, in terms of what they wanted out of a campaign and you didn't have a sufficient guard on your the prisoners that were taken and to be honest with you sometimes you just couldn't do anything about it um british soldiers were shot defending american soldiers in some of these instances so it's just something if you're going to if you're going to do war with large amounts of, of native allies, you just, this is one of the things that you have to prepare for, and not a lot of people did. Um, so, uh, the, a common lack of progress uh, in, in, in Proctor's campaign saw the warriors begin to desert. And by the time Proctor retreated, he had only a talk, token force of the you know, terrifying host, in quotes, that uh, he had begun the campaign with. That being said, Whole populations now fled to the British forts in the north, fearing American reprisals. 
and by the summer Tecumseh's magnetism had gathered 3,500 warriors. And he, with that, he, he persuaded Proctor to try again to take Fort Meigs. Um, and this time Tecumseh seemed to be almost in strategic command, which as I said before, really made a lot of people angry. Um, but that was the way it was. He, he at least had some sort of a plan that was more audacious. Whether it was correct plan, that's for some other day to talk about. But um, this met with no greater success against stubborn American resistance. And um, Tecumseh likens fighting the Americans in their forts to fighting groundhogs. Um, the chiefs were not pleased with the British either. Tecumseh was at his wit's end with Proctor, and he was apoplectic when he was asked to retreat with him to the Thames River in the face of an American offensive in September uh, of 1813, um, and planned to end the alliance. Now, the Sauk leader, Black Hawk, would later be famous in his own right, similarly fed up, and he just went home when he had the British, in quotes, and this is a direct quote, were making preparations to retreat. I was now tired of being with them, our success being bad and having gotten no plunder. That's sort of to sort of give an idea of what some people were in this for. Um, the retreat involved some 1,200 warriors and their families, and Proctor's small force ended in uh, force uh, retreated, and this operation ended in disaster at the Battle of the Thames in October. Uh, up until now, it has to be said that it was hard to gauge if Tecumseh was as talented a general as some say or not, but he was certainly better than Proctor. His death in this battle uh, was the end of the great dream of Native American unity in the Northwest and the end of the Grand Alliance with the British, all the tribes went home pretty much when he died. It was a great tragedy um, and it is celebrated in a strange way throughout American popular history, the death of Tecumseh. Um, you can see it in popular engravings, there's carvings of it, steles, it's folk, absolute folk legend is Tecumseh and the, the final stand. Um, but it didn't end the way he hoped. And um, this is, this is the end, obviously the end of Tecumseh's war. It sounds like a phenomenal talent. It's, it's a pity, really. Um... Very, very tragic. Though, of course, that is war. Um, so next up, we have John Norton. Now, his story has this sort of air of Hollywood about it. Are you going to tell me that, you know, Mel Gibson's going to suddenly jump into this Zoom call um, and and sort of do the, whatever the podcasting equivalent is of photobombing this interview? I mean, two minds as to whether that would be a good thing or not, because, you know, if he would bring the cash to get it to the screen, and that would make me very tempted to say yes. I mean, I was actually going to say, in a <laughs> flippant kind of way, it would automatically be a bad thing, because with the best one in the world, yes, the films are entertaining, they're not known for the historical content. But if it brings sponsorship, who knows? I'm open to offers. <laughs> we'll help you with the screenplay, Mel. <laughs> uh, but uh, I guess the fact that he was mostly on the British side would probably discount him as fodder for Mel's uh, production machine. I guess. This is true. This is true. So, Norton, talk me through it. Okay. Uh, John Norton was an adopted Mohawk who had some Cherokee blood 
from his mostly Scottish parents. Um, after service in the British Army, he had become interested in the Iroquois way of life and became a protege of Joseph Brandt, the famous uh, Iroquois uh, leader from the American Revolution. Um, and eventually he was adopted into Brandt's family as a nephew. Uh, he traveled widely and did a lot of work with Brandt when conflict broke out at Prophetstown, and he was involved in the Tippecanoe campaign in 1811 and rallied to Brock at Detroit in 1812, despite official Haudenosaunee, and again, that's the proper term for the Iroquois, uh, neutrality. Uh, Norton and Brandt's son played a conspicuous part in the Battle of Queenston Heights, uh, and this shows as a psychological effect, again, of the presence of warriors could have on um, the appearance of th just 300 Iroquois ruined the morale of the American militia simply by overrunning a few outposts at the decisive moment. Uh, the, when war whoops were heard during the final British attack and were taken up by the advancing line infantry, the militia fled in terror and couldn't be you know, you know, brought back into action. And Norton was also present employing his similar psychological presence of his warriors at the Battle of Beaver Dams, and you just have to love a lot of the names in the, uh, the War of 1812, just the, the, just, just the weirdness of some of them. I've been thinking this the whole way through as I've been prepping for this series of episodes, and the names are just incredible. Yeah, brilliant. Beaver Dams has been one of my favourites. I think we need to hold a vote at the end yeah. of this month that what has been the best battle name out of War of 1812 month. It's it's a thing. It's an entity. It has to be done. It has to be done. I want to know all of the weird names because I'm sure there are weirder names out there. But um, So he was also at the battle, at that battle, he was also at the Battle of Chippewa in 1814 with a small force of Iroquois and opposed a similar irregular group, which included, amongst others, the great orator Red Jacket, another Iroquois friendly to the USA. Um, this just goes to show that it wasn't just the British that got Native American support. Some people thought, well, if we ally with the big powerful USA, they'll be our friends and they'll, you know, we'll be able to work with them. You know, everybody has the, the, an answer to a problem that is probably beyond an answer. But um, Norton, getting back to Norton, um, after the war, he, he disappears from the record because, I mean, no, no one really knows even when he was born. He's a very mysterious chap in that sense, although he did leave a journal. Um, uh, but that was only published in the 1970s. Uh, and the last record we have of him is in, is in 1826. Um, and there's one record that says he died in 1827. Uh, but Norton was similar, as in terms of his legacy, he was similar in some ways to another individual from the previous generation who died in 1805, a chap called William Augustus Bowles, who had sort of become part of the Muskogee. And he brilliantly, again, this, this should be a movie as well, um, he had tried to create an independent state of Muskogee in Spanish East Florida in the 1790s. Uh, do yourself a favor and look at that up and ponder if something called the state of Muskogee shouldn't be a movie. Also, take time to appreciate the flag he designed for it. It's, it's, it's very cool. Quite well, obviously Ridley Scott is not listening to this podcast, otherwise he would have hired me to advise him on Kitbag. Um, although if he has listened to this podcast, He'll know my views on Napoleon and know that they're not really marketable for the big screen. Um, but if Mr. Scott 
um, master as you are of films like Gladiator and um, Alien and, and many others besides, um, you, you are in need of something that's not another Napoleon themed um, movie, but nonetheless, you want to stay in the period, there you go, and hire Josh because he's lovely to work with. Um, so hopefully we've secured you a, a promising career in um, advising uh, production companies, but we haven't finished this interview, so you can't go gallivanting off just yet. I'm going to make you stay. Um, and I'm going to throw someone in from the other side into this, like a hand grenade into um, what's been a, a very, I wouldn't say fun conversation, but it's been a, a nice conversation. Um, next up, Jackson. Not nice. Deeply unpleasant individual by all accounts. But he is key to this topic, nonetheless. Talk us through what he's up to. Well, yeah, Jackson is very important for understanding what happens in the South. We've been talking about what's happening in Ohio and along Canada and stuff like that. You would understand what's happening in the South and the Southwest and Southeast, indeed. Um, all the South. <laughs> what am I talking about? The South. Uh, you have to get Jackson. Now, as you say, Jackson is a person whose legacy... I personally have no great liking for in practically any instance I've ever encountered it, but it is instructive to bring up people like him because for a, from a historical standpoint, we are constantly reminded that legacies must weather the passage of time and changing values and that things were different in the past. And even if it is distasteful, we have to confront and respect that fact because if we could time travel, I assure you all, uh, it would not be people like Jackson who are the minority. Uh, you know, when when you would go when you're traveling, in 1812, Jackson was the governor of Tennessee. He was about around 45 years old. He had a background in the law. Um, he and also he was a planter originally from Carolina. He was sort of like earthy, forthright, um, sort of down to earth enough, but I don't know, distant enough. Uh, to for people to get on board with him and he was just immensely tough yeah. as well one of his um, um, biographers just to give people a sense of, of the guy's reputation one of his biographers who i'm hoping to interview we shall see if that actually transpires described him as the first populist politician um which, which gives you an indication of of the nature of the guy Mm-hmm. Yeah, he could he could absolutely get people to get he could absolutely convince people he was the real deal. Um very much uh looking forward to that episode if it comes out, because I mean, as far as unpleasant individuals go, Jackson is is quite interesting for the <laughs> at least even for the devastation it caused. Oh dear. But um Having grown up uh, during the revolution and even participated in it, uh, he hated the British. And when war broke out, he promised 2,000 men to the struggle. Uh, President Madison, being a Federalist, didn't like Jackson, and supposedly the offer was left on the table for most of 1812. But in 1813, Jackson marched his men down towards New Orleans, where he was supposed to join uh, the army guarding the Mississippi. Uh, But doubts as to the readiness of his men saw him halted at Batches and ordered to hand over his supplies prior to disbanding his troops. Uh, Jackson was determined to prove a point. 
and handed over his supplies and then marched back to Tennessee paying for it out of his own pocket just to prove that his men were in good shape. This was a terrible decision. Uh, he managed it, he got a lot of respect, but his men suffered appallingly. Um, it was a ridiculous move from a prideful man, but that was Jackson. Um, I mean, if you strip away all the legends about his flinty and honest character, you'll find that he rarely planned a campaign that didn't end with his men suffering in some way, um, most of the time anyway. And he tended to blame others when stuff went wrong as well. But, you know, populist politicians do tend to do that. He wasn't a regular army officer either. He was a militia general and he would overstep the line a lot of times. He executed a regular infantryman once and that was, he was not technically allowed to do that. Um, but he had, he was dealing with, he also dealt with mutinies um, and juggling the fact that the majority of his troops were 60 day militia um, volunteers. Um, and from that point of view, of course, it was very impressive that he managed to actually conduct campaigns with 60 day drafts, uh, men who would be going home soon and usually didn't like having to do the stuff he was asking him to do. Um, in 1812, uh, Tecumseh had gone into the Muscogee Nation briefly and preached his message. And as we said, as we've seen before, Little Turtle was proved correct. Uh, the results were civil war. Um, those who rejected the message were cultivated by the USA, and the adherents of Tecumseh's gospel were called the War Party or the Red Sticks, due to the Muscogee practice, apparently, of painting their war clubs red. Um, and in 1813, this internecine struggle spilled over into the murder of white settlers at Fort Mims. There was a military aspect to this too, it just overflowed into uh, the massacre of the, basically everybody who was in the fort. Um, uh, an impressive victory therefore marred by this uh, horrendous event. Um, however, the Red Sticks felt that this massacre was just retaliation for the American attack on them at Burnt Corn Creek, and then the others say that it was because of this, and they say because of this, and go on and on and on and on. But do please look into it for yourselves, see where the trail leads. It's not very pretty. Um, Jackson, as governor of Tennessee, was the nearest authority to, to quash the uprising, or at least one of the most active anyway, because Alabama and Georgia did get in on the action uh, as well. The Creek War, or the Red Stick War, lasted until 1814, and it was mostly one-sided. Uh, it lasted so long because the limitations of the militia system and bad coordination from the US forces, most of which were militia, and one of whom was actually David Davy Crockett, and the other one was Sam Houston, uh, plus Jackson's own often poor handling of his men saw the struggle last longer than it needed to. Um, and, a and a Muscogee civil war therefore became a fight that would inevitably see the nation massively reduced. Um, Jackson won a string of victories, though. Um, he was opposed by, most famously, a war leader of mixed birth, there's a trend here, uh, named William Weatherford. Um, uh, and in March 1814, Jackson cornered Weatherford and his second command, another mixed race chief named uh, Menowa in a fortified loop of the Tallapoosa River called Horseshoe Bend in Alabama. The battle was hard fought um, with the Muscogee having built uh, artillery proof barricades 
uh, absorbing the round shot that Jackson tried to break it down with, uh, thus forcing him to overcome them um, with, uh, with the bayonet. And he put the red sticks to flight, many of whom fled to their seminal cousins in Florida. The losses incurred uh, the loss here incurred forced the Muscogee to sign the Treaty of Fort Jackson, which ceded 23 million acres, I've read it at one account state, um, to the United States. And, well, that basically cut the entire nation's territory in half, uh, maybe more than in half, and uh, left them in a very sorry state indeed. Jackson, um, militarily speaking, then followed up his success by marching on Pensacola, um, where the Spanish, who were allies of the British at this point, we must remember, were allowing the British to supply the Red Sticks with uh, munitions. And in fact, uh, Jackson even found a letter in Spanish to um, the Red Sticks congratulating them on the capture of Fort Mims. So he had a lot of reason, you might say, to go and just tramp over a nation he was not <laughs> that the United States was not at war with um, breaking a great deal of international treaties and laws and doing so but he he did it he drove the British off into the Gulf of Mexico um, and but feeling but fearing that the British fleet he had driven out of Pensacola would just hop along to Mobile and attack that, he turned his men around and started marching west on the road that would eventually lead him to New Orleans, where he would fight a relatively well-known battle. You might have heard of it. And, you know, it wouldn't do him any harm in the long run to be associated with the defence of New Orleans. Let's put it that way. Indeed. Indeed. And, and one of the significant elements of New Orleans, of course, is that he can position himself as architect of the defeat of the British, something which some of his colleagues elsewhere in the nation hadn't been able to achieve. So in terms of legacy for the War of 1812, for the Native Americans specifically, is this as simple as just saying Jackson? Uh, in some case, well, certainly in the, in the South, Yes, it is. Um, Jackson is also very much involved in, in the continuing wars in the South and the Seminole Wars as well. He, he's called into that, that, uh, that mess. Um, but, you know, Tecumseh has a very strong legacy in popular imagination as well. Uh, he and his brother are sort of a beacon of idealism and hope of what might have been a grand confederation or, or union of states that could possibly have opposed the progress of the United States. Some of this is unrealistic. As we've seen, Tecumseh caused as much internecine strife as he did bring unity, but we can't be too harsh. He wasn't given the time. And we, as we know all too well, uh, one Native American, or well, as he knew, sorry, all, all too well, one Native American was not the same as the next, despite what the United States thought. It can't be ignored that two presidents of the United States, Harrison and Tyler, and to be honest, Horseshoe Ben didn't do Jackson any harm at all, pretty much won their elections based on their reputations garnered in service in wars against these people. Um, if Jackson hadn't won at New Orleans, he'd probably not have uh, got his administration, though maybe the Red Stick War would have been enough. It's hard to say, but, but if he didn't win, maybe, maybe there wouldn't have been an Indian Removal Act. So. 
<laughs> what injustice would have replaced it is anyone's guess. Uh, the War of 1812, to be honest, muddies the waters, I think, on what was really going on in the territories, because this, this is the second stage, like I said before, of the great struggle, struggle to resist the Euro-Americans. And it had begun first with the Northwest Frontier War, then Tecumseh's War, the Red Stick War, which uh, was multiple, and, and it, it represents multiplied millions of acres of land removed from the nations who claimed sovereignty over them. From the seeds planted by this series of costly conflicts grew the gem of Indian removal and the wars of Black Hawk and the Seminoles which followed, the latter of which lasted into the 1850s, but despite which saw the United States finally established territory from the sea to the Mississippi. And as we all know, it didn't stop there. It's a very poetic point on which to end. Josh, thank you as ever, my friend, for a masterclass in stuff that I was completely clueless about. I felt like I should be taking notes on this one, genuinely. Um, I have been educated this evening. So thank you as ever for coming and joining us and for enlightening us to the contents of your brain. I don't know how you kind of know so much about so much. It's incredible. People, I've advertised this book many times. I make no apologies for doing it again. Bullock's Grain and Good Madeira, published by Hellion. Go direct to the publisher to purchase it, please. I implore you. Um, you will also find that Wild East was published um, by Josh. Apologies, I forget. Was that Hellion or not? Uh, Hellion? That's Font Hill. That's Font Hill. Um, and that isn't Napoleonic in nature. But nonetheless, if you're enjoying Josh imparting his knowledge, you're going to want to go and buy it. Adventures in History Land, you'll find it on YouTube. Hit that subscribe button. Don't headbutt it, just hit it. Um, and you'll also find Josh on Twitter at Land of History. Josh, my good friend, thank you so much. And I'll see you again very, very soon, I'm sure. Thank you. Thank you very much. A big thank you, as always, to my Patreon supporters, my Emperor-level patrons, Mark Stoos, JC Kaiser, and Todd and Laird Campbell. My Marshall patrons, Matt Bone, Marcus Cribb, Roy Muir, Liam Telfer, Ger Brown, Graham Swidenbank, Colin Zimmerman, and Duo Teixeira. My Commander patrons, John Haynes, Jane Davis, Bob Burnham, Andy Meakin, Michael Guest, and Ross Flowers. And my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Rachel Stark, Noah Fink, Andrew Wright, David Maxwell, M. Duck, Anthony Gumbau, Chris Pramus, Mars Reedy, Alexandra Leon, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Beatrice de Graff, Brendan Teeling, Colin Fieldhouse, Ed Koss, Bruins Girl, Jeff Maple, Hugh Brennan, Indiana Fats, Jim Deary, Jim Getz, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tatner, Lynn Dawson, Mark Anscombe, Rob Griffith, Ryan Diamond, Rob Coughlin, Mark Trowbridge, Nick Overland, Stephen Coulson, Graham Goodwin, Graham Spicer, Keys Bishop, and David Priest. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleonicist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Hey, 
it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.